You are listening to Veterinary Vertex, a podcast of the AVMA Journals. In this episode, we chat about forelimb versus hindlimb administration of dexmedetomidine, ketamine, and eastern box turtles with Olivia Petritz and Ashlyn Hennef. Welcome to Veterinary Vertex. I'm Editor-in-Chief Lisa Fortier, and I'm joined by Associate Editor Sarah Wright. Today, we have Olivia and Ashlyn joining us. Olivia Nashlin, thank you so much for taking time out of the busy season to be with us here today. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, our pleasure. Thank you. All right, let's dive right in. Ashlyn, your article is a great mythbuster. As a student or house officer, we're taught to avoid administering anything to reptiles in the hind limbs due to the renal portal system and hepatic first pass effect. Your study provides evidence to back up this claim in one of my favorite reptiles, the Eastern box turtle. As a student, I participated in Matt Allender's wildlife epidemiology lab, so box turtle everything. (laughs) Can you give our listeners a bit of background on this study? Absolutely. So at NC State, we see a lot of Eastern box turtles as both client-owned pets and wildlife rehabilitation patients. Um, And largely because of the fact that they can fully retract into their shells and box in, hence their name, uh, we end up having to sedate a number of them in order to facilitate physical exams, diagnostics, and treatments. Uh, And while we sedate them all the time, we realized no one had actually formally evaluated sedation or anesthetic protocols in this species um, or published on it. So we decided it was up to us to be the first. We also realized um, that as you... Uh, kind of touched on before, trainees and clinicians are routinely taught this idea that you can't give anything in the hind limbs to a reptile. Um, But if you actually dig into the literature, there's very few evidence-based studies to back this up. Um, It's based on a lot of anecdotal evidence, and it really just hasn't been studied that well. And furthermore, those studies suggest that there may be differences between species and different drugs. And just another thing to add that in addition to the variability species to species, uh, there's also some variability documented on where you inject, like hind limbs versus tail. So I think all of those things combined, we were really interested to evaluate it in this species. To echo Lisa's prior comments on some other podcast episodes, it's always important to have evidence, not eminence. Based Ooh, I research. like that. So, yeah, <laughs> that's why I'm giving her credit for it because I've heard her say it before. So, you're stealing all my good one liners, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've been at this for too long. <laughs> so, Ashlyn, what were some important findings from this study? Yes. So, in our study, we decided to look at three different uh, sedative or anesthetic protocols. So the first was a combination of dexmedetomidine and ketamine in a forelimb intramuscularly. And then for the second treatment, we took those uh, same drugs, but added midazolam and compared those two. Then for our third group, we took the three drug protocol of dexmedetomidine, ketamine, and midazolam and administered it into a hind limb in order to compare it to the effects we saw with the forelimb injections. Um, And what we found was firstly that Four-limb dexmedetomidine ketamine alone resulted in clinically relevant anesthetic effects that were heightened with the addition of midazolam. And secondly, we found that hind-limb rather than four-limb administration of the three-drug midazolam dexmedetomidine ketamine protocol resulted in reduced and more variable anesthetic effects 
which is supportive of a potential hepatic first-pass effect in eastern box turtles, since all three of these drugs are primarily hepatically metabolized in studied species. Can you just hear the person who first suggested that? I told you that. <laughs> but always, yeah, always good to have the evidence. Absolutely. And I think there's like ketamine and dexmedetomine have been used pretty commonly in a lot of different reptile species, but midazolam, I'd say, is a newer drug being used. Um, it often is um, added on and not used solely, but there are several other papers looking at it as a, a sole sedative. Um, I think the tricky thing is in larger reptiles, which eastern box turtles don't fall into that category, but large turtles and tortoises, um, it often becomes a volume-limiting drug. So I think a lot of these studies have looked at the addition of that drug in particular to kind of prove or disprove, um, is it really effective? Does it really add some additional sedation effects um, that would justify its its large volume? And, and we found that it did. Yeah, very good. Very important paper. Ashlyn, uh, there's so many things we don't know about reptiles in general. What sparked your research interest in reptile anesthesia? Yes, great question. Um, so another mentor, in addition to Olivia, that I've worked with um, is Julie Balco, and she's a veterinary anesthesiologist who looks um, at advancing anesthesia and analgesia in non-domestic species. Um, and I started working with her after my first year of vet school, and I realized that was an area of research that I was really interested in um, as someone who wants to become a clinician working at a zoo. Uh, there is so much room for growth in that area. Um, even though we have a lot of experience, you know, sedating and anesthetizing uh, these zoo animals, the number of sedative and anesthetic event events for each species is so small compared to what we have for dogs and cats, where, you know, we can retrospectively go back and easily find a thousand dogs that got the same uh, protocol versus, you you know, you're not going to find a thousand eastern box turtles um, unless you really go to every place that has eastern box turtles. And even then there's going to be variations in those protocols. Um, so this is sort of an area that not only for turtles, I would also say, you know, for amphibians, for fish, for exotic mammals and birds, this is something I really want to um, advance uh, as I go through my career. That's great. What a great contribution. I can feel your enthusiasm. And what a great, <laughs> uh, yeah, you're just going to add so much to this literature and to our profession. Thank you. Uh, Olivia, what sparked your interest and obviously sustained interest in reptile anesthesia? Yeah, so I think um, uh, echo a lot of the things that Ashlyn said, and I have collaborated with Julie Balco on many different sedation projects um, in a variety of species, chickens, rabbits, now box turtles. Um, and I agree. I think it is, it's uh, disheartening at times to have these species that are very charismatic and um, either client-owned or wild or housed at an institution like a zoo and not really have a lot of scientific evidence for something as basic as I just need to sedate it to collect X sample. So I think trying to uh, investigate that further in a safe, studied, controlled environment to be able to apply that to some of those other species um, and is is really what inspired me to do this and continue to do that. Um, and a lot of these clinical questions I think I'm interested in as well, like, is it effective in the hind limbs versus not? We always say that it's not, but is it, has there been any study done in this particular species? Well, no. And that's what prompted this study. Yeah, there's so much we can do for the welfare of 
this broad category of zoo wildlife animals. I remember early on my residency, so the very early 90s, we'd gone to a zoo to do an orthopedic procedure on a polar bear. And they were giving it a gram of ketamine every 10 minutes on the alarm. Beep, 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 a gram of ketamine. And I said, why are you doing that? I said, well, you know, because we want to make sure it stays anesthetized to keep the people safe. And I was like, oh, okay. What do your polar bears eventually succumb to? They're like liver disease. I'm like, no kidding. (laughs) So, so yeah, it's these, these things are really important. And to Ashlyn's point, difficult to do. Uh, So given that difficulty, Olivia, what inspired you to write this manuscript? This can't be easy to pull off as Ashlyn was alluding to dogs and cats are much more abundant and you don't have to unbox them to check the anesthetic <laughs> protocol. Yes, they they're not really willing to um to comply with a lot of our requests often. So, yeah, I think we um we do have a turtle rescue team here at NC State, so they are wild box turtles and others. Box turtles are probably our most um frequent flyer as far as that goes, but it's a rehabilitation that we do here. It's mainly student run. Uh, so we see a lot of box turtles that come through there. Um, we also see them as pets on our clinical service here. So I think just the the commonality of the species um, and the abundance in the area. So all of these um all of these turtles that we used were client owned and had you know appropriate consent forms and everything signed off. But yeah, I thought that if we had a you know an adequate population size, that this would be a reasonable non-invasive uh, study to do. Ashton, how about you? How, how what inspired you to get involved? Yeah, so um, Olivia actually came up with the idea for this project first, um, and she had been mentioning it to Julie Balco, uh, who, and then they both mentioned it to me, and I was immediately totally on board. Um, partially because I knew it'd be a great mentorship team to work with. And then also I uh, had worked at the turtle rescue team that was just mentioned. Um, and I had a lot of experience sedating, you know, wild turtles that came in and needed a shell repair or needed blood collection, or maybe even needed an amputation. Um, and I found subjectively that I felt like it was really hard for me to predict, uh, what I was going to see. Uh, with the amount of each drug that I was giving, like it did not seem to be super consistent between turtles. Um, and I realized, you know, part of the reason is that we're doing this off of anecdotal evidence. We don't really have a lot of published uh, data. So I thought we could do something to make it better for the next group of turtle team students. Yeah, it's really important, especially just to kind of build on future studies too. So thank you so much. And then Ashlyn and Olivia, if you want to answer these questions together, you can. What was the most surprising finding from your manuscript? Hmm. Ashlyn, you want to go first? I think you it's bet. <laughs> yeah, I think we probably feel the same way. Um, but so kind of two things that go together. So first, uh, even though hind limb administration uh, did result in reduced efficacy, it was effective. Like all the turtles stopped ambulating. All of them experienced some degree of sedative effects. Um, And then the kind of most surprising thing for me that goes off of that is the fact that we saw very variable effects with the hind limb protocol. So some of those turtles that got the hind limb injections uh, were very sedate to the point that I would even call them lightly anesthetized as we could intubate them. Um, In contrast, a couple turtles that got those hind limb injections were actually like lifting their heads up and almost appearing to look around the room. And most of the turtles kind of fell somewhere in between those two extremes after the hind limb injections. 
Um, and this was in contrast to the four limb treatment groups where the sedation scores for those groups were pretty consistent among the turtles. And I think, as we mentioned before, you know, that's it is kind of lore that you should never inject a, a reptile of any species, all thousands of species of them in their hind limbs or tail. Um, so this was in contrast to that finding or to that lore, but also I think helpful for the rare event that you may get a turtle, box turtle that has a bilateral forelimb amputation or fractures or, you know, some other lesions or wounds that prevents you from injecting them in their forelimbs, that a hind limb would be a reasonable but variable option. Um, yeah, anything else, Ashlyn? Nope, I think that, that's about it. I think there's a lot more to go uh, in terms of, you know, th there's analgesics uh, to look at, there's other anesthetics, and I think it's also important to consider, uh, you know, how are these drugs metabolized? Is it hepatic metabolism? Are they excreted renally without any kind of biotransformation? Um, and then, you know, further complicating things is the fact that uh, we're extrapolating from mammals, you know, what we know about these drugs um, in mammals. But at least from, you know, this finding with this hind limb variability uh, and given the anesthetics that we gave are primarily hepatically metabolized in mammals, um, we're suspecting, you know, this is the result of a hepatic first pass effect. I think is a little bit in contrast to what the standard understanding is that it's the renal portal system is why you shouldn't inject in the rear legs. But this is, like Ashlyn said, most likely hepatic first pass effect. So a little bit academic, but still, I think, important for veterinarians to know. I actually did look that up after I read your manuscript and I was like, huh, I always thought it was the renal portal system. And I kept seeing that you're saying hepatic first pass effect. So, yeah, I learned something myself from reading your article as well. So did I until I took this project on. Uh, when I, literally, <laughs> when I first started vet school, that was one of the first things I was taught was, oh, the renal portal system. Um, but yeah, if you, if you actually dig into the literature, it's not quite so black and white. Very interesting. Yeah, I can see this being useful too for species that have kind of scary front ends, like the alligator snapping turtle, where sometimes you can't always have forelimb access safely. So <laughs> definitely. And to our listeners that are just joining us, we're discussing reptile sedation with Ashlyn Hennef and Olivia Petritz. Ashlyn, how did your advanced veterinary training prepare you to write this manuscript? Yes. So as I kind of touched on before, uh, I started doing research very on in veterinary school at first uh, with Julie Balco and then also um, with Olivia Petritz, Greg Lubart, um, lots of other awesome faculty at NC State. Um, and I initially started doing research because I knew I wanted to work in zoo medicine and everybody will tell you, oh, you should get some research experience. That's really important. Uh, but I quickly realized this was something that I actually loved um, as much as the clinical side of things, if not more. And I've taken on several uh, first author projects throughout vet school and sort of each one has made me a better writer, better problem solver. Um, and, you know, then when I got to this study, even though I had never done a sedation or anesthesia study before. Um, I had done several other studies, including euthanasia, coagulation, um, and those sort of techniques and skill sets that I developed um, from those projects uh, were really easily transferable to this one. Um, and I, you know, just kind of keep on these taking on these opportunities in order uh, to become a proficient scientist, not just to like pad my resume, you know, not just doing these projects to do it. Uh, but to have the opportunity to actually contribute to this field before even graduating from veterinary school. 
Yeah, I'm sure future advanced training programs will really appreciate that you already know how to write and publish too. So that's a good skill to have. This is nodding your head. <laughs> it really is, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Olivia, how about you? How did your advanced training prepare you to write this manuscript? Yeah. So I think I, you know, I've been through residency internships myself. And um, I would say doing research as a primary author versus a corresponding or mentor uh, is a little bit different. So uh, I think that's something that I've worked pretty hard on these last few years. And that's a you know, big transition, right, from you being the primary researcher to supporting others in research. And I, it's very um, fulfilling. And and I love, um, I love mentoring people. And Ashlyn is just a gem. So this was a, a very easy project um, because of her knowledge and experience. So I agree. It is different being on the other side of things. There's a fellow at the Vancouver Aquarium where I did my fellowship and she's finishing a study that I had started when I was there and I was reviewing her abstract for her. And I had to really look at it from a different lens since I wasn't the one writing it, right? I was kind of editing it for her and kind of like looking to see what are the important key parts and communicating that in a way that's constructive and helpful. And so learned a lot through that experience. This next set of questions are really important for our listeners. Ashlyn, what is one piece of information the veterinarian should know before discussing the hepatic first pass effect in reptiles? Great question. Uh, so as we touched on a little bit, uh, you know, just distinguishing between the renal portal system and the hepatic portal system in reptiles, uh, their hepatic portal system is different from the mammalian one. Um, so that's another layer of confusion if you're, you're talking to clinicians. Um, but basically uh, making the point that uh, it's it's not black and white. It's not it's not going to work in the hind limbs or never do it in the hind limbs um, because some studies have actually found no difference between cranial and caudal injection sites. Um, and you really need to think critically about the patient, the clinical presentation, um, the drug you're using, and where you're giving it. Um, while studies are pretty limited, uh, some historical papers showed that more of the uh, venous blood from the tail of uh, a turtle species went to the kidneys, while more from the hind limbs went to the liver. Um, and while we have, you know, very limited, uh, you know, prospective comparisons of this, I think it's just really important to take all factors into consideration when choosing your injection site and your protocol. And I think knowing the metabolism of the drug, something that's a little bit more academic, right? A lot of clinicians, myself included, you know, we look at the side effects of the drug, the duration of drug, dose of drug, um, and sometimes the the actual metabolism of it, you know, either gets lost or forgotten um, along the way. So I think that is a really important consideration as well. And very important information for our clinicians. And then Olivia, what is one piece of information the client should know about sedation in reptiles? Yeah, so I think um, one, it's different than their dog and cat getting sedated. Um, I think the variability species to species is important to know. And I think for the most part, a lot of exotic and zoo clinicians are very forthcoming with that information. Like this is a very novel species and, you know, or I've never sedated the species before. So I think being um, having some degree of transparency is important, but I also think it's important for clients to know that the duration of sedation and recovery is often much, much longer. So we kind of go with the verbiage that, 
you know, reptiles do everything much slower, they get sick slower, they get better slower, and that pertains to sedation and anesthesia too. So if your veterinarian is a little hesitant to sedate your box turtle at 3 p.m. in a business day, there is very good reason for that because um, the, the recovery is often very prolonged. But that's why we do these studies to try to figure out how long is long and what what that would look like for the average X species. Um, but yeah, just knowing that it it will take probably longer than a mammal. And that's something we like to do uh, at the beginning of our business day rather than at the end. Really great advice. You know, it's, it's fascinating to me that our, our veterinary profession is amazing. We have so many cool options on things that we can do, subspecialties, general practice, not just specialties, but species specialties, which it doesn't happen in obviously anywhere in human medicine. Right. Um, so Ashlyn, I'm just curious, what, what inspired you to pursue a career in zoo medicine? Great question. So, uh, I sometimes make the joke that I knew this is what I wanted to do since conception, because I really cannot recall a time where this, this was not, uh, what I was meant to do. So I went to zoo camp as a kid, I was three years old and I told my parents, I'm like, I'm going to work there someday. Um, and it never really changed. Um, but, you know, as I became an adult, I remained really interested in medicine. Uh, a lot of my family comes from a medical background, um, and I love going to the zoo. Like, if I could have gone to the zoo every day as a kid, I would have um, just absolutely loved it. And I specifically recall when I was 15, uh, 15 years old, just, like, reading about the American College of Zoological Medicine and, like, oh, my gosh, you can pursue residency training to be a vet at a zoo, um, and I realized that sort of everything I've ever wanted to do kind of fit um, within that college. Uh, and here I am 11 years later, and that's uh, still really what I'm what I'm trying to do. Um, and as far as like, you know, the kind of ad adult reasons for it, you know, not just being a kid who loved animals, um, is that I'm really interested in just the unique uh, physiology and pathologies that affect these exotic species from around the world. Um, and finding ways to advance their standard of care. And also that I believe that zoos and aquariums are integral to successful wildlife conservation. Um, because I really believe, you know, with the state of the environment these days and, you know, um, uh, human wildlife conflict um, and habitat degradation, that we really, really need zoos, uh, you know, to work with these species in close contact where we can learn a lot about them. Um, and, you know, potentially even breed them in captivity to reintroduce them or even just breed them in captivity to learn more about them in order to apply that to saving species in the wild um, and to educate people about, you know, why we're doing it. That's a really great response. You know, I think your passion for zoo medicine is the same as mine in equine. <laughs> and I can tell you, it never crossed my mind a single <laughs> moment of any day in my 58 years of life to become a zoo medicine doctor. <laughs> Olivia, how about you? What inspired you to follow the path to zoo medicine? Yeah, mine is uh, maybe not as early on as Ashlyn's was. So my, my first passion was uh, dinosaurs. I wanted to be a paleontologist. This was pre-Jurassic Park. Um, and then I changed, changed mind in high school, um, decided to pursue veterinary medicine. I have no veterinarians in my family, first doctor in my family. Um, and my first job in undergrad was as a zookeeper at a small zoo. And I'd really not entertained the idea of zoo or exotic species really at all, just because I had not been exposed to it other than going to zoos. Um, 
So I I kind of thought my options were like large animal, small animal, and that that's all I knew. Um, but there was a, a part-time zookeeper, part-time zoo vet. Um, he was a general practitioner that came there and um, his name's Kurt Voley. He still is a zoo veterinarian, not at this particular zoo, but um, he was just, he was really inspiring. Like he, the fact that he could come in and transition from a primate to a bird to a reptile and, and he had, you know, no formal training in zoo medicine, but I, I was just amazed and thought that that seemed pretty interesting and there was never a dull day and every day was different. And so I thought, Hey, why don't I, why don't I try to do that? And that's what kind of, um, inspired this, career. And I, I echo everything that that Ashlyn said about, you know, helping both animals in captivity, as well as those in the wild and the human wildlife interactions and conservation medicine in general, I think is um, something that we can each kind of work on as veterinarians. But um, I think zoo and wildlife vets uh, get to be maybe a little bit more on the forefront of that. Well, thank you both. I've learned a lot from this conversation. As we wind down, uh, we just asked like to ask a little bit more of a personal question. So, Ashlyn, what is the first concert you attended? <laughs> yes, so I'm from Indianapolis originally. Um, and the first concert I went to was on the lawn downtown Indianapolis, uh, Death Cab for Cutie. I was about 10 years old and I was playing tag with my friends while my parents were actually enjoying the concert. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Olivia, for you, I, I hear you're a puzzle aficionado when you like to do puzzles do you start from the outside and do the perimeter or do you do like color or schematic pieces in the inside first uh so i typically start with the corners just because that may be easiest to start then i work my way around the edges and then i fill in the middle i'm not sure if that's the standard of what you're supposed to do but there we are that's fascinating. We've gotten a lot of edge, but not specifically corners. <laughs> do, do people mess with you and like move your corner from top to like, that would be me. I'd move you from two yeah. o'clock to eight o'clock. And the next time you turned your back, I'd move you from eight to 10. <laughs> My husband has been known to hide a corner or two, which is very frustrating, <laughs> but yes. Since we've been getting the edge answer so much, I've almost been likening it to a physical exam. You know, you start either like nose to tail or vice versa. And I feel like as doctors, that's our mindset. Although not always the cases we've learned from some recent episodes, but kind of interesting. So, <laughs> and just thank you again, Ashlyn and Olivia. We really appreciate your time today and your contribution to AJBR. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. And to our listeners, you can read Ashlyn and Olivia's open access AJBR article on our journal's website. I'm Sarah Wright with Lisa Fortier. We want to thank each of you for joining us on this episode of the Veterinary Vertex podcast. We love sharing cutting-edge veterinary research with you, and we want to hear from you. Be sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to.